If you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want to ask you about your own thankfulness. We're not yet at Thanksgiving time. It's always a good time of the year to sort of do a spiritual check on our thankfulness. Sort of do some evaluation on our instincts toward thankfulness or lack thereof. What are you most thankful for? What kinds of things are you frequently most thankful for? Well, as I think about that, I think for myself, I'm frequently thankful for things that are surprising. Surprisingly good. If it's good and it's a given, it's a good that I'm used to, well, my thankfulness is, well, logical. It's pretty staid, though. It's pretty, pretty calm. The kind of thankfulness which is moving, loud, arms raised, exuberant thankfulness often is the kind of thankfulness that's a surprise. For me, I find most of my thankfulness has to do with something that's good for me. Something that benefits me, something I like, something that I'm helped by. And if I'm honest, my most natural instincts to be thankful... I fear are for things that are temporary, physical, human, material. Well, Paul gives us an example here that's quite different. Colossians 1, starting in verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... And of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So a couple of weeks ago, we introduced this book of Colossians to you. And we talked about the fact that Epaphras is likely the mediator between Paul in this church in Colossae. Epaphras is a messenger that probably got converted under Paul's preaching. Took the message to the Colossians. They received it. They heard it from him. They became Christians. They became a church. Well, in Epaphras' travels, he eventually comes back to Colossae, and he gets an assessment of what's going on there, and he hears great things, as we already read here from chapter 1. He has a lot to give thanks to God for, for what God's doing there in their midst. But remember, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Colossians 2 deals with falsehood that was threatening the church. Perhaps from the outside... You know, starting to dabble its way in, maybe, possibly, already in the church, and something to be concerned about from inside. But nevertheless, Paul hears from Epaphras, as Epaphras travels then to Paul. Paul in Rome, in prison. Epaphras comes to him and tells him the report of the Colossian church. And that report is mixed, right? It's mixed with some great praise of their true conversion, the fruit of conversion in their lives, and yet... Also, this possible threat, possibly from the outside, but this false teaching. We'll talk a little bit about it again today. But Paul, I think here, is focusing on the thankfulness part. The good part of this Colossian church. The things for which to give thanks for. And so, I see seven things for us to talk about in these verses. The first is kind of general. It's the need for thankful prayer. It begins with Paul saying, I pray for you. I always thank God for you when I pray for you. So this example here of Paul should remind us of a very general concept, giving thanks to God. And yet, I think we should realize that while that is something a lot of people do, some not very religious, some usually very young kids like to give thanks, give thanks to God. It's very, very important. And yet, while a lot of us do it in some way, shape, or form, I would say the kind of thankful prayer Paul's promoting here is neglected. 
So it's a, a very general appeal here from Paul, his example that he prays and that he's thankful. That's a general thing. Yeah, in some ways it's common. In some ways a lot of us do it, but it's very important the way Paul's doing it and it's very neglected. He reminds us that we need to work at being thankful because we're not this thankful. We might be thankful, but I don't know about you, I'm more quick to give the thanks that's quick, a kind of undescript kind of thanks, right? Lord, I'm thankful for that thing. I don't describe that thing. Paul will not only say that he's thankful for that thing, he goes on in elaborate terms to describe that thing that he's thankful and make connections from that thing to God and his goodness and other gifts. If you're trying to draw this, it's more like thankfulness matrix, right? There's just these connections all over the place. And mine's more one thread. Thank God for this. He reminds us we need to work at being thankful. His prayers are loaded with thankfulness. If you back up one book to Philippians, Philippians 1, there's a prayer of Paul, and it has thankfulness as a major theme. The same would be for 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 Thessalonians 1. So you have four prayers and four letters there right in a row where Paul gives us some great examples of thankfulness in prayer. Some examples that we need because we're not naturally thankful. Especially if we think of the natural human heart before Christ. We might remember Romans 1.21. Although they knew God, even though they denied God, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Right on par with atheism, agnosticism, denying that he's there is thanklessness to him. Scripture tells us instead, over and over, that we should be thankful It reminds us to be thankful. It invites us to be thankful. I'd encourage you to maybe take this assignment with you. Go home to a computer. I'm assuming most of you have a computer. I'm assuming most of you have an internet connection. So you can go to a a website called BibleGateway.com. Or you can go to the ESV uh, Bible website. And you can search there. You don't anymore need an expensive program to search the Bible like you did 15 years ago. You can do it on the web. Search thanks. The word thanks. And see how it's used in the Psalms. I read through every instance of thanks in the Psalms this week. And what a stirring, worshipful exercise that was. Seeing Psalm 71 again. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. It dawned on me. I've never thanked God for his name being near. You see the sort of elaborate description of thankfulness and things to be thankful for? That we're seeing in the Bible? Psalm 75 says, We recount your wondrous deeds. Part of the expression of thankfulness to God is to list his deeds, to ponder each one. Psalm 106 says, Give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. What a remedy for my guilty conscience. What a remedy for tomorrow's failures. When I fail to remind myself, Oh, his steadfast love endures forever. Search the Psalms for that word, thanks. Also remember that we're to be giving thanks for everything, according to 1 Thessalonians 5. There Paul gives us three quick commands. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In all things give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, that's a a great takeaway for my morning time with the Lord to put in my pocket. It's in my brain. I don't need to write it down and put it in my pocket. But I I sometimes consciously put that one at the forefront of my brain to be a meditation throughout the day. To give thanks in all things. That's needed. And it's not natural. We're not good at it. Thankfulness is a neglected area of prayer, not just in the world, not just in my own heart, but get this, I have well over a dozen excellent books on prayer in my study. Thumbing through each of them this week, I was shocked to see that none of them had a specific chapter devoted to thankfulness. They have chapters devoted to praise kind of prayer, right? Supplication kind of prayer, requests, asking him for specific things. Uh, They have 
They have chapters devoted even sometimes to complaint, prayer, which is some kind of a holy complaint to God. You see it in the Psalms. I can't talk about it this morning and articulate what it is and what it isn't, almost importantly, almost as importantly. But you see chapters on complaint and good books on prayer. But in my collection anyway, and I think they're some of the best books on prayer that are out there, no chapter on thankfulness. It's not the same thing as praise. Praise is worshiping and thanking God for who he is. Thankfulness, thanksgiving, is praise and worship for what he's done. They get mixed and mingled, but they're not the same thing. Now, Paul is not only showing us to work at being thankful, he's saying work at being most thankful for spiritual blessings. Now, remember earlier I said that I tend to be instinctively thankful for things, number one, that I'm surprised by. (gasps) This is good, and it happened. I didn't see it coming. I tend to be instinctively thankful for things um, that are for me, that benefit me. There's kind of a self-centeredness about my thankfulness. I admit it. And most of what I tend instinctively to be immediately thankful for are physical blessings, temporary blessings. Well, what we're seeing from Paul is that he's thankful for things that aren't surprises to any Christian. They're the basics, and they're glorious. And we should be most thankful for what we see in others, not first and foremost in ourselves. Paul begins this section not thanking God for for his grace toward Paul. He begins with thankfulness toward God for God's faithfulness and grace toward the Colossians. His primary focus is on God's goodness shown, not in the niceties of life or the bonuses or the surprises or the extras or the temporary physical variety of good things. I hear things are going well in Colossae. Well done. Thanks be to God. He doesn't say that. No, he begins by talking about his thankfulness for their salvation and for God's work in them. Boy, you know, even speaking personally, even when I'm most eager for holiness, for growth, for godliness in my life, I'm not very thankful for the existing work of God in me. Instead, I tend towards pessimism. I tend to be disappointed about what's not there in my own Christian life. And some part of that is good. There should be some holy restlessness, as Paul says in Philippians 3, to forget that which is behind and press forward to the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, right? We should be motivated for more. We should desire to see more. But at the same time, we should give thanks to God for what he's already done. And I know there's a possibility that I could be like the Luke 18 Pharisee who pats himself on the back and prays a a prayer of self-congratulation. Lord, thank you I'm not like that anymore. Thank you I've gotten over that hurdle now. Yeah, that's possible. doesn't mean it's wrong to give thanks to God for the fruit that we see in our lives. Thank God that some battles aren't as hard as they used to be. No, take heed lest you stand. Take, take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. But thank God for fruit. Thank God, however small, however inconsistent it seems. Let's acknowledge that it's His doing, not our own. And we need to work at giving thanks for spiritual blessings. We need to work at giving thanks for the Spirit in our lives and His illuminating power of the pages of Scripture. We need to work for the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ and what that benefits us and what it gives us. We need to work at giving thanks to God for the intercession of the Spirit, that He prays prayers for us in ways that we know not to pray. We need to pray and give thanks to God for a million of His manifold benefits in Christ. There aren't a few. There are many. We need to watch for reasons to give thanks in others. Yes, give thanks to God for what he's doing in you. Yes, watch for spiritual things. Thank him for spiritual things, not least your own conversion. But watch for reasons to give thanks to God for others. 
which takes a certain amount of optimism, which takes a certain amount of de-emphasizing some of the bad. Well, some things need to be confronted. But love covers a multitude of sins, we're told. That means with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I need to focus on God's goodness to them and through them to others. Now, now here's where community groups are a perfect lab. You know, some of you aren't in a community group and there are other ways in which you're pastorally, you know, you're covenantally connected in this church. You're doing the one another's. You, you, you have people in your life that you can depend on and confess into and all those sorts of things. The best way of doing that, though, the best lab for these lectures, if you want to use that college phrase, that college picture there, it's community groups. Community groups are the best. So picture being in your community group. Picture what they look like if you're not in one. And picture hearing good things. Oh, I know you know about their bad marriage. I know you know about his financial scandal. I know you know that she has a problem with gossip. Yeah, yeah, just tuck that away for a little bit, all right? God knows too. And when she says, I so enjoyed prayer this week. Don't be skeptical. Don't resent. Don't think, well, what kind of prayer? You know? Is it like cheesy prayer? You know? Is it really theological prayer? Were you praying Puritan prayers, the Valley of Vision book? You know? Were you really praying biblical prayers? No. Let's be optimistic. Let's watch for reasons to give thanks in others like Paul does here. He could have begun this letter with a focus on himself. He could have even begun this letter with a complaint about his poor circumstances. He's in prison. Plenty of Christians have abandoned him. They've maligned him. Churches are split on whether Paul is a good guy for the church or not in these days. Paul begins with none of those legitimate prayer requests. He begins with focus on them, thankfulness to God for them, and thankfulness specifically for God's spiritual work in them, to sanctify them, to grow them in the gospel and in faith. And then I think what we see here is that we communicate that thankfulness and prayers of thanks to others. That's what Paul's doing here in Colossians 1. He's not only telling others, us in the 21st century, I prayed for the Colossians with thanksgiving. He's telling the Colossians, he thanks God for them. Not only prayed quietly and secretly on his own about the Colossians, thanking God for them, he tells the Colossians that he's thankful for them. We should tell people we're thankful for them. We should tell people when we saw a fruit of the Spirit. We should do better at it. Don't you think that would actually encourage fruit around here? I know I would be encouraged in pursuing the fruit of the Spirit more if and when people would say, I saw that, that was love. That's, that, I, that looked like real, genuine love right there. You know? Oh, that could turn into pride. I know it could. Everything can go bad. Anything good can go south. But let's not avoid that cautionary path by never acknowledging God's goodness to others and acknowledging it to those we, in whom we see it. That's the first thing, just a general call for thankful prayer. Secondly, Paul's thankful specifically for their faith. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith. We always thank God since we heard of your faith. He's thankful for their faith. And of course, their faith isn't just blind belief. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not credulity. The key here is to see that there's an object to this faith, right? If you were diagramming this sentence, remember diagramming from school? The object here is in Christ Jesus. It's not just faith. It's faith in Christ Jesus that Paul is so thankful for. Thankful for their faith in the person of Jesus, who's fully God, fully man, the Messiah, the complete fulfillment of all the promises of God. Their faith is in the work of Christ Jesus, his person and his work. His work being that in our place, he lived perfectly and died completely, taking our death, taking our punishment, and rising victoriously in the third day. That's the kind of faith that Paul says is genuine in them. 
That's the kind of faith that he's thankful for. It's not just a given. Did you see how it can so easily, and it has become so easily a given in our church culture? Well, of course we're Christians. We're in the church together. Of course you have faith. I don't need to keep saying I'm thankful for your faith. Do I? Paul does. Paul thought so. And not because he was forgetful or a little slow. He thought it was good for us to keep rehearsing. You're saved. You're forgiven. You have faith. I am thankful. If I can give thanks to God for nothing else, I'm thankful for your faith. And don't forget his main point. Paul thanking God for their faith. And what we've already said to apply that. I think what I mean is, We should use the reality of thankfulness to God for others and the work of grace in them to help us fight off our aggravations, our frustrations with each other, our disappointments and disagreements with each other. Again, community groups being the lab in which these things are best done. So I hear something you say. Maybe it's off theologically. Okay, my prayer of thanksgiving to God for the genuineness of your faith can help me fight unhealthy frustration. There's a biblical frustration with falsehood, but there's also an unhealthy frustration even when you're right. Or maybe it's not theological, maybe it's just differences. Maybe you tend to be a talker and I tend to be a thinker, a sitter, a a quieter. And so your talking drives me crazy. Ah, Paul's thankfulness to God for their faith should be a reality to help us fight off aggravations and disappointments that we have with each other. Work at it. Work at it from the faith up. Work at it from the ground up. Thirdly, I think Paul's thankful for love. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. He's thankful for their love for each other. And not just love in general. It's love for the church, for specific people. For all of them. There's no, there's no click here. That youth group word, click. I know we don't say it anymore as adults. We don't say, oh, you guys are just a click, aren't you? You know, but... We have our closer friendships. That's good. That's healthy. That's normal. We have a community group. Perhaps you're closer with them than you are other people in the church. That's fine. That's helpful. You you can't be best friends with everyone. You can't do everyone another with everyone in a church this size to the same degree. But Paul says here, they have love for all the saints. Nevertheless, they have love. Jesus and John both told, told us that The world will know that we're Christians by our love. There's an inextricable inextricable connection between discipleship and love for disciples. That's what Jesus said. So if there isn't love, according to John especially, if there isn't love for brothers, if there isn't sacrificial love for brothers and sisters, we may not have the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul here says something similar. He says their faith and their love are inextricably together. If their faith is real, if they're truly in Jesus, they will have, and they do have love for each other. Do you? Do you? Is this a point in which you need to remind yourself? 1 John talks a lot about how love for others is a test to see whether God's love is in me. I better go read that again. I haven't seen what looks like genuine love in a long time, maybe. It's not just a feeling of love. It's a commitment to love. It's a decision that Paul's talking about here of love in this church. It's only this kind of love that will love the unlovely. And that's the kind of love we've received from the Father, isn't it? If I asked you to describe, guys, the the time you first saw your wife, you laid eyes on her, and, and what did you see? You might say, oh, her hair, the wind was blowing, right? <laughs> eyes were sparkling. She was lovely. And then I got to meet her. 
I liked her. We had things in common. We laughed together. Then later on, I, I touched her. Skin is soft. God made women beautifully, you know, and I got one. I love her. She is lovely in my eyes. That's true with our wives. And that's not true as far as how God came to love us. He came to set his love on the unlovely. It's not that we were obedient. It's not that we were cute. It's not that he was lonely. It's not that he just couldn't help himself. He decided to set his love on the unlovely for his glory as a testimony of his name in this world. That he's gracious and merciful. But he doesn't love because we're lovely. And that's the kind of motivation, that's the principle for motivation that we need as we love each other in the church. We need to love the unlovely because we're the unlovely that was loved. We've been loved. Who are we to be any more stingy with our love than God was with his? 1 Corinthians 13, I said already, it defines love for us. Love is not easily offended gives the benefit of the doubt, doesn't assume motives. Did you know assuming motives is a very unbiblical and terribly unhealthy thing? It can divide churches. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 that the Corinthians were wrong to assume that they knew Paul's heart. Paul says, I don't even know my own heart. I could have done good things and I think that they're good and done well and I may have done them to my glory. We'll find out at Judgment Day. Why don't you wait until Judgment Day 2? Be careful of assuming motives. That's part of love. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love covers a multitude of sins. Let's be thankful. Let's give thanks to God in prayer for others' love. Oh, I know we can all share hundreds of stories of where love in the church didn't go far enough, didn't hit that person. That person got missed. That person wasn't loved I know, we all have stories of where love was, it failed, even in the bride of Christ, the church. But you know what? I need to do better about acknowledging and praising God for all the love that I do see. Oh, it might be inconsistent. It might be small. It it may not be perfect. But where I see love happening, what is that? That's a gift of God. That's an expression of discipleship that comes from being in Jesus and comes from having his forgiveness. Thank him for it. And thank him for when people express love for you. You say, well, they don't love me like they should. Let's be honest. We all get more love than we deserve. Uh uh-uh they were mean they were really mean they did really bad things i know but let's think of the word deserve in theological terms what do we deserve what are we owed what's really ours what's really justice god's wrath god's wrath now god's wrath forever Oh, that there is any expression of love in this world is a mark of his kindness. His loving kindness is over all his works, including relationships in the church that are flawed, that are not yet heaven. Be thankful for love. Be thankful, fourth, Paul says, for hope. Verse 5, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, Verse 5 began with a because of. Paul's hooking up a lot of good things here. He's mentioned faith and love, verse 4. And then he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. If I began a sentence by saying, because of the stock market, period. You'd say, what? What's the antecedent? What came before? What are you talking about? What's because of the stock market? So, do me a favor. Let's hunker down with our Bibles here and try to figure out what Paul means by because of. 
what the thing is he's referring to that's because of. Because it matters. Okay? So it could either, look down, refer back to verse 3. Where there he's thankful. Verse 3. Dot, dot, dot. Because of their hope in heaven. Maybe it goes all the way back to verse 3. And Paul's saying, I'm thankful. And he lists some things. And then one of the things he lists there at the end is because of their hope in heaven. Or it could be this, that their faith and love, which are given there in verse 4, those faith and love things, gifts of God, are in part because of their hope. Does that sound right? Faith and love are because of hope. I know this feels like a logic test. Or worse, grammar plus logic equals this. Come on. Bear with me. Is Paul saying faith plus love is because of hope in heaven. Heavenly hope. Eternal hope. Hope that when we die, we will be right with God. He will receive us to his fellowship. We will worship him for all eternity. Our sins are forgiven. Does that produce faith? No, 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 no. It can't be that because of a chronological sequence. Faith is what brings that kind of hope, right? It's faith in Jesus Christ that brings the kind of hope of heavenly reward before the face of Jesus. Right? That's true. That definitely is true. But I think Paul here is saying that the Colossians' faith and love are because of their hope. Because of their heavenly hope. Now, here's what he means. He means that this isn't a logical progression. This isn't linear thinking here. This is a circle. This is a cycle. The cycle goes like this. Hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, we call that faith. Faith in Jesus leads to, yes it does, a heavenly hope. Faith in Jesus leads to hope that you know you're forgiven and that when you die or when Jesus comes back, you'll be right with him and accepted by him. Faith leads to hope. Faith and hope also, it's true, lead to love. That's one of the the things in the equation here. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, yes, and hope lead to love. But he's also saying this. Hope of heaven leads back to more faith and more love. Knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that our hope is outside of us. Your hope is in heaven. And that doesn't just mean chronologically it's in heaven. Like your hope is later. The later part's taken care of. You can know it's not just a hope so. It's a no so. It's a faith thing. He's not just saying that. He's also saying your hope produces and increases faith. Your hope of heaven gives you a basis to let wrongs disappear. Wrongs that are done to you, they can melt away. Why? Well, there's a judge in heaven. I'm not him. Injustice can happen here and now. I don't have to be the arbitrator. He is God. See, it's not enough To just know and occasionally remember that we're saved and we have a hope of heaven. But we need to ruminate on that. We need to think on that, ponder it, live in it. And that kind of heavenly hope will increase our faith. Will get us to look off ourselves and our deeds into the mercy of God. A hope that's in heaven is one that can't be moved and can't be shaken. A hope that's in heaven is one that's unchangeable. A hope that's in heaven is one that's outside my ups and downs of today's living, today's failures. Set your hope fully on the grace to come is what Peter says. 1 Peter 1, set your hope fully on the grace which is to come. I've preached a number of suffering messages of this church, and many of them have that verse in them. That this is enough to sustain us in our suffering. This isn't it. Jesus will eventually, in eternity, make it right. And I can set my hope fully, not on this trial going away, not on that bad person being fixed, but I can set my hope fully on the grace which is to come. That's it. That's all I can promise you. I can't promise... Your health problem will get fixed. I can't promise that, that 
sore spot of your job will go away. I can't promise those tough people in your family will, will stop. I can promise this. If you're in Christ, his grace is sure and nothing can separate you from the love which is in Christ Jesus. Praise God. One day, this will all be new. It'll be made new and he will fix it. And he may not fix it until then, but he will. And you can, you can wait. He'll give you the grace to wait. Thankful for hope. Of course, we've already implied this. The fifth thing, it's explicit. Thankful for the gospel. The end of verse 5, he just says, the gospel. The word of truth. It's what you heard. That's part of the hope, the faith, and the love. Gospel literally means good news. The message of the person and work of Christ. Particularly what he accomplished in his life. His perfect righteous life. And his substitutionary, complete death, and his victorious resurrection for our sins. That's the gospel. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the thing that's of first importance. What is it? Well, then on Friday, Jesus died, he was buried, and then on the third day, he rose from the dead. That's the first important message. That's it. It's the gospel. It's the good news message. It's what they've come to believe. It's what has brought them hope. It's what has spurned on their love. Notice the progression of saving experience. What we call conversion. Notice in verse 6 of Colossians 1, Paul told them the gospel came to them. It comes to you. He says in verse 6, they heard it. He says in verse 6, they understood it. Back up a verse in verse 5, they understood it apparently to be truth, right? They assessed it as true, right? They understood this message also to be grace, that word, verse 6. They understood this message to not only be true, but to be a message of grace. Someone has given a great acronym for grace, what it means. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches to us at Christ's expense. Well, they believed this, which is called faith in verse 4. They received it by faith, and as we saw, it results in hope and love. So I wonder where you are in that conversion process, that, that progression that's talked about here. Maybe you're just now hearing this, hearing that your hope is outside of you and in Jesus' finished work upon the cross. Maybe you've wondered all these years why Christians were so fascinated by the cross. They wear the cross. They talk about the cross. They're people of the cross. Why? That's where Jesus died in their place. That's where he bore the wrath that we all deserved. Do you know that? If not, keep seeking him. Keep praying about this. Ask Jesus to open your eyes so you'd see him. We don't normally see him. We don't of our own being our own abilities assess him right. It's like we're all born with crazy contact lenses in, right? Spiritually speaking, we're all born with these bent eyes. And when you look at Jesus, you think, uh-uh, what? A carpenter, homeless, prophet, preacher guy of first centuries, the hope for the world? Yep, that's it. So God's gotta give you new eyes to see that and maybe... If you really feel hung up, you would just pray. You'd, maybe you'd agree that it's possible we all as a humanity have been born in sin. Born astray. And we don't see things right. We need help from God to see. Now, debating whether we have time for this, I think we do. Let, let me try to show this. Paul has another purpose for why he's talking like he is about thankfulness and the specific things he's thankful for in the Colossians. Remember, we said Colossians 2 is mainly about false teaching. Remember from a couple of weeks ago, we described that false teaching as something like this. The Colossians were being told that, yes, the gospel's good, sure, Jesus is right, but there's more. There's more. Like a bad infomercial that keeps saying, and there's more. That's what these false teachers were doing. And they've Treated it like a secret. You've been told the kindergarten version of this story. Well, psst, we have sort of the advanced calculus. We have quantum physics version, religiously speaking, 
of what you need to know. You don't have really the full thing. You have a nugget of it, and we've got the full and real thing. What's Paul doing here? He's trying to show these Colossians have already heard. You see, that's a, a word that would have rung true with them because they'd been told, you haven't yet heard. Let me tell you something you need to hear. Paul's saying, you have heard. Epaphras told you. He got it from me. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. You came to believe it. That came to give you hope and love for others. You have everything you need. That's exactly what 2 Peter says. We have everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. You don't need something more. Faith, hope, and love springing from the gospel. That's enough for you. There's no more to be had. So rest in Christ, Colossians. Love the church. Look to heaven. Thank God for these. Remember I said, I tend to be thankful instinctively and naturally and exuberantly thankful for things that are surprises to me. These are basic things. Are you the kind of person that gets bored easily? Christianity, in some ways, may be tough for you. Because you you don't keep finding, in a sense, new secrets. In a sense, you don't move beyond the gospel. The message is still, rest in Christ, love his church, look to heaven. That's it. That's what Paul's talking about here. And that leads us to the sixth point. He's thankful for gospel growth. He says in verse 6, the gospel has not only come to them and in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and growing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood it in the grace of God. Now, how is the gospel bearing fruit? How is the gospel growing? One way the gospel grows is by landing into new hearts, right? The gospel bears fruit when more people believe it. And Paul may be talking about that because he says it's in the whole world. But there's another sense that I think he might also mean, not or, but also. He may also mean that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the hearts of those who have already received it. Now, if you've been here for a long time, that's not a new concept to you. If you're fairly new around here, you grew up in the kind of evangelicalism I did? That's shocking and weird. We're used to hearing that the gospel is supposed to spread to new people. Not shocking. We're used to hearing that Christians are supposed to grow. 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ. Supposed to grow. But what seems shocking, at least as I was told growing up, It seems shocking to see that Paul is really saying here, the gospel is the thing in us that is growing and bearing fruit. Not just Christians grow. Not just the the gospel's growing by hitting new people. The gospel is growing and bearing fruit in the hearts of those who already have it. They don't move past it. The gospel is still for Christians. It's still for Christians. We never outgrow it. We never stop needing it. In part because we keep sinning. In part because we still wrestle with guilt. I need something to comfort my weary soul when I do that sin again? Come on, really? That sin again? Those sins that you think, how could I? You know, someone's praying in my community group and I'm thinking bad thoughts about that person who's praying to God. They're talking to God and I can only grow my anger towards them and frustration with them, my doubt of Motives, prayers. Maybe it's an impure thought in the middle of Bible reading. What? Where did that come from? Why can't I stay focused? Maybe it's the kind of dryness that doesn't even feel like praying. What hope do we have? Well, just tomorrow's a new day. Try better then. No. No. We need to comprehend more fully 
Christ's finish, victorious and complete work for us as the comfort to our guilty conscience because he did it all and also as the motivation to, yes, want to do better. Tim Keller is a pastor in Manhattan, and I've quoted him, and I've used this specific quote before, but it's been a couple of years, so it's worth using again. Listen to this. We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it's more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we all make progress in the kingdom. We're not justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience, but the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It's a solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. It's very common in the church to think as follows. The gospel is for non-Christians. One needs it to be saved. But once you're saved, you grow through hard work and obedience. The Colossians 1.6, our passage, shows that this is a mistake. All our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. So when Paul left the Ephesians, he committed them, get this, to the word of his grace, which can build you up. The main problem then in the Christian life is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not used the gospel in and on all parts of our life. That's what Paul is commending these Colossians for. He's he's glad that the gospel has spread to more people in their area and even throughout all the world. The gospel is bearing fruit, we could say, broader. But the gospel is also bearing fruit, we could say, deeper. Remember we say this as a church? We're spreading God's glory broader and deeper. Well, the gospel is the chief way in which that glory is spread, both broader and deeper in the world. The gospel's the the root of the Christian life. So I want to ask you if your gospel fruit is real gospel fruit, or if it's sort of trumped up fake fruit, your own strength, your own efforts, often to your own glory. We should ask if we're pursuing holiness in a way that is a conscious expression and living out of the gospel. I may be doing what I'm doing out of fear, out of guilt, or out of pride. And they might look good to everyone around me despite the motives being so far off. How ironic when we do what we're doing, doing good out of a motivation of guilt. See how ironic that is? In light of the fact that here Paul's talking about doing good as a gospel fruit being done in freeness. He died, he died not just to forgive us and then say, well, you better be pretty good from here on out. But he died to forgive us and make us free. Only that can motivate true love for, for a community group, for a church, for friendships in Christ. One more quote from Dane Ortland, Ray Ortland's son. You remember Ray with us a couple of years ago? Dane Ortland, his son, wrote on his blog, I believe we have very little awareness of how law-marinated our hearts are. How our fears and anxieties and short-temperedness and envy are simply the fruit of this. And how the great task of the believer is to re-believe each day the shocking, even scandalous freeness of God's favor because of and in communion with his son. One last point. We should be thankful for gospel messengers. Paul's thankful for Epaphras. He's thankful to the Colossians that the the message had gotten to them through the, the messenger of Epaphras. We should be thankful for messengers. Those who first shared the gospel with us. Those who taught us the basics of the gospel. That, that church where you learned what substitution meant, what propitiation meant. That church where you learned that Romans 1 through 3 is about sin and judgment. But Romans 4 turns a corner about the grace of God. 
Thank God for those messengers. Paul does. He's not above it. He doesn't think, well, it's a given. Of course he, of course Epaphras told him, what what else is he going to do? Be a wayward, renegade Christian who keeps the gospel to himself? Of course he brought it to his city. That sounds pretty logical. But it's not Pauline. Paul gushes about Epaphras' faithfulness in delivering the message to the Colossians. And then he gushes about the Colossians to Epaphras. There's this talking going on, communication of thinking through and worshiping God in what's going on. Do you see that? It's Epaphras leading these people to Christ. Epaphras later coming back and getting a pulse in the congregation. Epaphras then taking that to Paul. Epaphras sharing that with Paul as they rejoice together in God's grace for what he's doing there in the Colossians. It's then Paul, through Epaphras, going back, writing to the Colossians and saying, I heard about it, I heard about it from Epaphras, he heard it from you. Do you see like this exchange going on? It's like a mutual admiration society. Right? They're just thankful for each other in so many ways. And they're talking about all the ways in which to be thankful for. Not to the praise of men, but to the praise of God. Paul commends Epaphras for coming to Paul with the news, the Colossians' faith and love. We should talk frequently and thoughtfully and worshipfully about what God is doing in our midst. Bow right now. Pray for wisdom how to do that. Lord, I pray pastorally for me, for our elders, for our staff to be more thoughtful and more strategic about ways in which we can, we can grow in our thankfulness, grow in our praying in general, grow in our optimism of love for others, grow in being good fruit watchers, excited about what you're doing and quick to talk about it. Lord, I pray for those here who don't know this hope, don't know what to talk about, don't get why we would try to stir ourselves up to do better about these things. I pray, Lord, You'd give them faith. They'd see. I pray they'd hear and understand and see it as truth. See this as grace. You'd give them hope and love. Lord, I pray that we would love your grace. Marvel at your grace. Think on your grace. Help us to feel our need of you, which inevitably will make us, if we're yours, Lord, it'll make us think of grace more. We pray you'd glorify grace in our hearts, increase our faith, grow our assurance of what you're doing in our lives if we're yours. Grow our hope of what's to come. Grow our yearning for that heavenly hope. We pray just what we prayed at the beginning this morning. Lord, let your kingdom come. We pray your will would be done more and more here on earth as it is in heaven. Until that day, where your kingdom and your earth, heaven and earth, are one. We long for you, Lord, to be all in all. We long for the fullness of what you have for us in Jesus. We thank you. We praise you. We stand in awe for your mercy. Amen.